Hi, and welcome back to the Abnormal Psychologist podcast, where we explore a wide range of issues related to psychology. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, a psychologist, and I apologize for not publishing an episode last week. Uh, Things have been pretty busy, which I'll explain a little bit of during this podcast. Uh, But anyways, I'm back, and I have the next two episodes planned out. The next two episodes will cover important topics. Uh, They're heavy topics, um, and they aren't really fun to talk about, but they are really important. So in today's episode, I'm going to talk about self-injurious behaviors, also called self-harm, and specifically, we're going to talk about self-mutilation, which is most commonly exhibited through cutting, and in next week's episode, I'm going to discuss suicide. Okay, so even though I'm doing this in a series, I'm sort of playing into the misconception that self-injurious behaviors are always related to suicide. It's important to remember that in a vast, vast majority of cases, about 95% of cases, people who engage in self-injury will not commit suicide and do not have any sort of suicidal intent. In fact, we have our own acronym for self-injury that's not suicidal in nature. We abbreviated NSSI, which stands for non-suicidal self-injury. Now, the two do share some risk factors, and self-injurious behaviors can exist on a uh, continuum or on a spectrum, um, from non-suicidal in nature all the way to suicidal in nature. So they're not completely independent of one another. And also, people can engage in self-injury and commit accidental suicide. But again, I think there's this misconception that all people who engage in self-injury are suicidal in nature, and this just isn't true. Um, We're going to see a lot of misconceptions around self-injury. In my clinical practice, it's just something that family and friends have a hard time understanding, especially older adults. They just don't understand why someone might cut themselves. It's something that's completely foreign to them. They think of it as some sort of millennial phenomenon that's just emerged in the last few decades. And we'll see, though, that self-injury has been around for a really long time. We see self-injurious rituals in indigenous populations. We see self-injury in religious rituals. We see it in Christianity, in Islam, in Judaism. We see it through self-flagellation or self-whipping. I mean, even the Bible espouses self-mutilation, right? It says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So it's not something that just emerged with millennials. In fact, psychologists and psychiatrists have been concerned about self-injury since the 1950s, especially related to drug overdose, which I think we don't often think about drug overdose as self-injury, but it can sometimes fit. And it was around this time that the term parasuicide, P-A-R-A suicide, was introduced. And parasuicide includes self-injury with suicide intent, and also just any attempt to harm oneself that is not lethal in nature, or at least it used to. Now, literature includes the word parasuicide to talk about being lethal in nature or somewhat lethal in nature, so it's just this uh, really hazy, changing term. I have noticed that the term parasuicide has sort of lost favor over the last few years, probably because it's such a broad term, and it erroneously, that's a hard word to say, erroneously, um, equate suicide with self-injury. Right. So let's try to more specifically define self-injury or self-harm. It seems like my students always want a textbook definition. I'll talk about a topic or something and someone will raise their hand and say, excuse me, can you just give me the textbook definition? Um, I get it, but I think we've become like kind of neurotic about having a textbook regurgitated sort of definition for everything. Uh, The world is nuanced. There aren't textbook definitions for everything that are out there, right? All right, off my soapbox. 
Um, according to Muhlenkamp and Cauley from the Encyclopedia of Mental Health, the definition of self-injury includes, quote, behaviors such as self-cutting, burning, and intentional bruising that are used by adolescents to cope with overwhelming distress and are not intended to result in death, end quote. All right. So one thing I don't like about this quote is that it says used by adolescents. Self-injury is going to be most common in adolescents. According to Gillies and colleagues, the average age of onset is 13 years of age. But it's something that it can occur throughout the lifespan. You'll see case studies of five-year-olds, of kindergartners engaging in self-injury. In fact, according to Whitlock, 1.3% of children ages 5 to 10 years old engage in self-injury. And you'll also see self-injury in geriatric populations. Self-injury can be associated with dementia. Um, there are case studies of ocular self-dementia, of hurting one's eyes due to hallucinations. So another aside, we often talk about self-injury as being associated with depression or teenage angst, but it also occurs with intellectual disability, with autism spectrum disorder, with obsessive compulsive disorder, and with dementia. It's not always, to go back to the textbook definition, a way to cope with overwhelming distress. It can be sensory seeking in nature, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Self-injury, by the way, is not just a human thing. It's been documented in certain primate species as well. Anyway, so we mentioned the average age of onset is about 13 years of age. I mentioned Jillies and colleagues a little bit ago. They did a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is a study that examines and combines the findings of multiple research studies. And this one looked at 172 studies involving self-injury from 1990 until 2015. And they found that self-injury occurs 1.72 times more often in females than in males. There is some conjecture, though, that self-injury is underreported in males. So this could actually be an underestimate. Most prevalence rates find that anywhere from 5 to 20% of people engage in self-injury over the course of their lifetime. It's sort of a wide range because the definition of self-injury can be so broad. And again, because many instances are unreported or underreported. Uh, according to the Cornell University Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery, only about 5% of people who self-injure report seeking treatment for it. So I mentioned Cornell, but you'll also see a lot of research from the UK, from the United Kingdom. Uh, the UK has the Bristol Self-Harm Surveillance, which is a wealth of information on self-injury. Right, so cutting is the most common type of self-injury, especially among females. Cutting accounts for anywhere between 45 to 90% of self-harm. With cutting, self-cutting on the arm is the most common form. Some research studies distinguish between cutting on the arm and cutting on the wrist, and these studies indicate that the wrist might be more of a suicidal gesture than cutting on the arm. Uh, cutting on the arm appears to be about three times more common than cutting on other areas of the body. But according to Carol and colleagues, cutting on other parts of the body has a higher risk of suicide than cutting on the arms. Um, I was told in my clinical training that cutting on other parts of the body is more concerning, so this aligns with much of the research that I've seen. Cutting on the thighs, for instance, is more personal, it's more private than cutting on the arms, so it's less likely to be an attention-seeking behavior. Also, in my clinical training, I saw a lot of instances of cutting that took place in the school bathroom. I haven't found any good research on the prevalence of cutting in school bathrooms, uh, but I think there could be some meaningful research here. Also, meaningful implications on how school staff should handle cutting incidents on campus. Anyways, I mentioned that cutting is the most common type of self-injury in females. In males, cutting may not be the most common self-harm behavior. 
According to Whitlock, self-injury presents differently in males and may manifest as substance use, as self-bruising, or as having someone else hurt them, sort of like the book and movie Fight Club. And to throw another wrinkle into things, I said that cutting is the most common form of self-injury, but when people define self-injury to include poisoning, some research finds that poisoning is actually more common than cutting. All right, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about treatment. First off, if you're experiencing self-injurious behaviors or have thoughts of self-harm, I urge you to text a crisis line for support. You can text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 at any time of the day or night for support. Uh, again, that's HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. All right, so you might ask, what do these treatments usually involve? Uh, many treatment protocols will involve formulating a safety plan with the client and the client's family. We can talk a little bit more about safety plans in our suicide episode next week. After the safety planning piece, though, treatment plans are going to vary considerably, as usually the treatment will try to treat the underlying condition. Uh, most mental health practitioners conceptualize self-harm as a symptom of a broader diagnosis. There's no standalone diagnosis of self-injury in the DSM-5, I guess unless you include excoriation, which is skin picking, or trichotillomania, which is pulling out one's hair. Um, there is a movement, though, to make non-suicidal self-injury a distinct standalone diagnosis in future editions of the DSM. Anyway, self-injury can be thought of as symptoms of a broader diagnosis. So you might be asking, what are these broader diagnoses? So according to the Bristol Self-Harm Surveillance, the most common diagnosis is a personality disorder, specifically borderline personality disorder. And this accounts for like 40% of all self-injury presentations. Um, after borderline uh, personality disorder, affective disorders like depression and bipolar disorders account for about 25% of self-injury presentations. And then social and generalized anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, and ADHD also account for a sizable percentage of self-injury presentations. Um, Self-harm is also associated with eating disorders. And I've read some estimates that as many as 75% of people with self-injury also present with disordered eating behaviors. All right, one thing many people ask me, especially family and friends of those who engage in self-harm, is why? Why would someone hurt themselves? There are still competing theories on the causes of self-injury, but many experts believe that endogenous opioids play a role. So when you're hurting, your body releases endogenous opioids which respond to the pain and can actually provide a sort of temporary relief or maybe even a high. And these endogenous opioids that your body releases can act in the same way that taking opioid medicines do. So in a way, they can become addictive. There is some evidence that people who engage in self-harm have lower baselines of these endogenous opiates or opioids when compared to people who don't engage in self-harm. And that the self-harm releases the opioids, which can provide a temporary feel-good sensation that also helps to regulate negative emotions or distress, as was mentioned in the textbook definition of self-harm. In a really simplistic way, it reminds me of the John Mellencamp song, Hurt So Good. And I've heard people who self-harm say that it helps them to feel alive. I've also heard others that say that it gives them a sense of bodily autonomy. Others may do it for attention-seeking reasons, especially if the self-injury is on exposed areas of the skin or is done in a public place. On a more philosophical level, um, I've heard people who engage in self-harm say that it allows them to contemplate their own mortality. So it's really important in treatment to get a grasp on the function of the behavior, 
uh, for my behaviorist friends, uh, a functional behavioral assessment or FBA on self-injury might provide some super valuable information. Um, also for my behaviorist friends, happy belated Burris Day. Uh, March 20th was the 117th birthday of B.F. Skinner. All right, so I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I've been pretty busy lately. Um, I ran a half marathon in Greenwood, Mississippi this past weekend. And in running these races, I noticed that some of the people that are participating are the walking wounded or running wounded. Uh, some people hobble around painfully and they seem held together by KT tape. Shouldn't this also be considered self-injury or self-harm? Um, I think you can make a convincing argument that running, especially running to the point of injury, is a form of self-harm. In fact, runners high releases endorphins, which are endogenous opiates. And at the neurochemical level, this is very similar to what happens in cutting behaviors. It seems like certain self-harm behaviors are socially acceptable, like running or getting sore through lifting weights, while others like cutting are considered pathological. Smoking cigarettes, getting your ears pierced, getting tattoos, or eating until you're uncomfortably full also seem to be socially acceptable forms of self-injury. Again, so much of what we consider depends on culture. I've seen treatment protocols that work on substituting cutting behaviors for socially appropriate alternative behaviors, like running or exercise. All right, so that's self-harm. Again, if you're experiencing thoughts of self-harm, please contact a mental health expert, an emergency line, or text the word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. Uh, the mailbag this week is empty. You can text comments, questions, or curse words to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. That's it for this episode. Until the next one, take care and stay well.